you, ladies. Appreciate that song. Take your Bibles, if you would, tonight. And uh, we're going to open up to a couple of different passages we want to look at and uh, try to uh, finish up the messages that we started last week uh, in the Sunday evening service. And of course, last Sunday night, we preached on defining biblical separation. And I I appreciate all the uh, comments that I received back uh, on that and uh, appreciate the way it was received, the spirit in which it was received as we tried to uh, just encourage, uh, since God has told us to be separate, that we ought to be separate. And uh, so tried to encourage in that and define exactly what it means to be separate as a Christian from the world. And tonight... Uh, we want to look at uh, probably a hot-button topic uh, in uh, Christian circles and looking at developing biblical standards. And uh, so hope that we can be a help and encouragement tonight in this area. Uh, we're going to open up tonight to 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you'd find your place in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then I've got several other scriptures that I'll read and uh, try to share uh, while you're doing that, I wanted to read you this little story in honor of Mother's Day. We, we shared the, the story this morning about the young lady making tea with the fly swatter. And uh, this, that was a 10. This won't be a 10, Brother Copy, but it's the best I can do on a Sunday night. Clara was in the midst of one of the worst days of her life. The washing machine broke down. The telephone kept ringing. Her headache. The mail carrier brought a bill. She had no money to pay. Finally, almost to her breaking point, she lifted her one-year-old into his high chair, leaned her head against the tray, and began to cry. Without a word, her son took his pacifier out of his mouth and stuck it in hers. So, sometimes there's days like that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you'll find your spot, verse number 15, there's several verses uh, throughout this chapter that we could look at. Verse number one, number two of chapter two says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men who should be able to teach, them, uh, to teach others also. And uh, of course, that goes right along with installing good biblical standards in our life. But we're going to pick up at, at verse number 15. It says, Study. I think that ought to be the first thing that we look at when we decide. Uh, how we're going to live our life as a Christian is to study the Bible, to see what God says about it. Because it, it doesn't matter what I say. Um, somebody, uh, I was joking last week, I said, well, tonight's going to be the night you'll hear all my personal opinions. Not really. Uh, my personal opinions don't carry any weight. I have many preferences. Uh, one preference that I have in my own life that... that I follow and my kids follow is when I walk into this auditorium, I take my hat off. That's my preference. Uh, one other preference is growing up, and I, I just want to share these with you because I think they're, they're very good. They, they're not inspired, but they're, they're Williams theology. Uh, growing up, my dad would never let me wear my hat backwards. That was just something I was not allowed to do. Now, growing up in my generation in the 80s and the 90s is when that started. Before that, the only people that wore their hat backwards was catchers because they had to put the face mask on. But during the 80s and 90s, it was done by the skater crowd, the disrespectful, rebellious crowd, as a sign of disrespect and rebellion against their elders. And so my father would not allow me. So growing up, it became my preference and as I raise my children, that is my preference in their life. It's not a standard. It's a personal preference. I, I believe for them to show respect. Uh, and, and since I wasn't allowed to do it, they're not going to be allowed to do it. So that's part of that. Uh, we, we have many, many different things. I, I prefer, as you know, Chick-fil-A over any other restaurant in the world. That is my personal preference. Now, some of my children do not share that. I, I wonder if they were switched at birth in the hospital. But... We, we all have these things. We all have personal preferences. But when it comes to biblical standards, and we're going to discuss how we develop those, this is where we start. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, 
You know, it's interesting. If you go back the very first time that shame is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis when Adam and Eve were naked and they were ashamed. That's free. Rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase into more ungodliness, and their word will eat as death a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I want you to hold on to that because we're going to, look, we're going to, we're going to revisit that later on. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. For man therefore purge himself. Remember we talked about this last week. If he purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. And so uh, in, in verse 22 he follows up, Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, Charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Then one of my favorite verses in the Bible is verse number 23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. Uh, One of the most strife-gendering things in a church can be standards. And usually it is because of foolish and unlearned questions. Because if we go back to verse number 15, you study to show yourself approved unto God that, you, that you're not ashamed. Because when somebody comes up and asks a foolish or unlearned question, and you say, well, the Bible says, suddenly, it's a foolish question. And so uh, we, we want to remember these things, that first we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Because after all, the one that we're going to have to answer to for my life, for the lives that I have been entrusted with, is God. And I want to be able to do that to the best of my ability. Now look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. And we want to look at some things here uh, real quick. And then I have some other scripture I want to give you. And I have um, a few things to say, and then we'll get into the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in verse number 19, it says, What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. Verse number 21 says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Imagine that. In our lives, by the standards we set, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy because we care more about what the world says, the current fashion, the current fad, or do we care about what God says? Are we stronger than he? Job asked that question. And God answered him and said, where were you when I formed this world? Where were you? So do we ask God, do we provoke God to jealousy? Do we believe that we are stronger than he? All things are lawful for me. But all things are not expedient. Expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify. All things do not build up. All things are not good. Let no man seek his own. We're so self-centered. I can do, is what we often say. I can do. But he says right here, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. We need to be careful, I believe, when setting standards in our lives that would not be the higher standard. As Pastor Clarence Sexton says, take the high road. Because we feel that we can, because in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 9 through 11, it says, but take heed lest by any means this liberty, that is a, a buzzword, when someone is trying to justify what they want to do. I have liberty. Once again, we go back to study to show that self of God. You look at that word liberty, part of the meaning of that word is privilege. Privilege. We are privileged to live the Christian life. We are privileged to be saved. 
So we take this liberty, he says, by, but take he's lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. To them that are weak. He says, for if any man see the things which has uh, knowledge sit at meat in idols' temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. He's saying, in, in this, in the church at Corinth there, they were having a problem with the Christians sitting and eating meat that had been offered to idols. And it was allowing other Christians to get involved in something that, that Paul said, hey, you're taking this liberty and you're making a stumbling block in front of them to where they do this, and then they take it even further. And so we have to be careful that we don't take our liberty, so to speak, and use it to our advantage, because all things are lawful, but all things are expedient. And so we will take our liberty and we will use it to our advantage to be able to say, I can do what I want, but God says, look to other man's wealth. Why? Because you don't want to be a stumbling block. A stumbling block. That is why in our church we have standards. We have standards. We have standards of conduct. I, and I hate to even call them standards because if I am seeking a place of leadership, it, it really shouldn't be a standard. It's just a requirement because I'm now an authority over someone else. And someone who is an authority will answer to a higher standard by natural nature. We have standards for teachers. And, and every September we will put our name upon a piece of paper that says, I covenant with the church to adhere to these standards. Now we have a choice. Because we covenant to the church, but we do not have the standards police. Uh, we do not police and go and follow. We don't put GPS trackers on your car to make sure that you're not going to a place that you said you would not go. We're adults. But if we covenant with God to do these things, to accept a requirement for leadership that we have said we want to do this, then we should uphold it. And along with upholding it, we should not belittle it to others. I believe that would go along with it. That, that, that goes into gendering strife. That goes into a whole nother ball of wax that God says, you don't want to go there because I don't like it. And so uh, even uh, I, asked, I asked Brother Tom to send me uh, the, the standards for being a choir member. I'm not allowed to be a choir member. And so I thought it must be really high standards because I, I'm not allowed to be in the choir. So I looked at it. I think I could fulfill them. I wear a tie every Sunday. I don't know. But I thought it was interesting, and I, I talked with the time about this, that there, there's things about attitude, spirit, spirit, attitude, a lot about that, having the right attitude. And in uh, talking with him, it, that is where it begins. How is my attitude towards God to accept these things that are imposed upon me. Because we accept imposed standards. If I were to walk to McDonald's tonight, which I wouldn't want to, but Pastor Brown would go to McDonald's tonight because he likes McDonald's. You go, and generally they'll have a sign there. No shoes, no shirt, no service. You know what that is? That's a standard that is imposed upon me that I will adhere to in order to get what I want. Could I eat a burger with no shoes on? If I'm in Kentucky, probably am. All right, we already learned that today. But I'm willing to accept the imposition of standards upon my life in certain occasions. Now, normally the young people will be sitting up here, and I was hoping they'd all be sitting right here because I had something very good for them, but they're... They're not, so I'll talk to an empty pew. In your life, you have imposed standards. Why? Because you are, sad to say, still a child. Okay, still a child. You're not an adult yet. You're not even legally recognized as an adult yet. So your parents impose standards upon your life. My father imposed many standards in my life. Uh, we, we did not have television growing up. 
And I'm not any worse to wear for it. I learned to read and read, not pat myself on the back, but learn to read well and expand my vocabulary. Uh, we, we did not have a television growing up. He, he had many different things to try to keep the world out of our home. Now, the thing with these imposed standards is they're not all spelled out exactly letter by letter. Come back to the choir uh, standards for being a choir member. In there, it says simply for dress that ladies should wear dresses and men should wear ties. That is very little. But there is an implied standard of modesty and godliness and looking our best. It's implied. Why? Because we're a church. That should go without saying. So, of course, in, in our day and age and in our uh, Christianity in which we live and, and the, the church age in which we live, modesty, and, and we're not going to delve into uh, a lot of it tonight, but we, modesty is biblical, covering ourselves as it pertains. Uh, in, in our personal standards that we have for our family, it's from the knee to the neck for guys and girls. Modesty does not just apply to ladies. It, it is covering ourselves with modest apparel. And what is appropriate, what is appropriate? You know, I wear to the ball field what is appropriate. I take a glove. Why? I'm going to try to keep someone from crushing a ball into my face. So I want a glove to get between me and the ball. It's what? It's appropriate. But I still have to maintain modesty, even on the ball field. Why? Because I'm a Christian on the ball field. So it does not matter where I go, my Christianity does not change. And so my level of standards are everywhere I go because I'm a Christian first. So the modesty that I take with me to the ball field, I take with me everywhere I go. And then I consider what is appropriate for where I'm going. I come to church. God requires my best, my best. So I give him my best every time. Why? It's appropriate. And then I consider what is identifiable. What identifies me as what I was born, a man. All right? So I dress modestly, appropriately, to where I can be identified as a man. That's why you will never, ever catch me in a pair of skinny jeans. All right? If you do... Beat the fool out of me. That's free. <laughs> no, that's not free. That's going to cost somebody something. But so on the other spectrum, with my wife and my daughters, and see, that is not just for me. That is for my sons. That is what they wear. Even growing up, we, I, I could not stand dressing them, and we did not, dressing them in the little cutesy little fairy-looking bibs that, that we see a lot of. Like, no, they are a little boy. And so I want them to be a boy. On the other side, I have two daughters. And so this, this is a, a bit of a sticky wicket here because it gets, uh, it gets rough in today's society. Because if I'm going to take a stand... And, and, and draw a line, I cannot then back from it. Because I have seen in my life where there has been a, a standard set and then a standard backed away from and then backed away from and it has never been recovered. Why? Because once we back away from something, that ground that we have given up is now lost. And it takes ten times the fight to get back what we have given than if we had kept what we had. And so for my wife and my daughters, they dress modestly, appropriately, 
and it identifies them as a female. Because that's what I married, was a female. And I want her to look like a female, and, and so she dresses that way. So these are standards that we have at our church that in, in the choir, they are imposed, but then they are implied that ladies will wear dresses that are modest, appropriate, and identifiable, that men will wear ties, but that their clothing will be modest, appropriate, and identifiable as a man. And so as we move on from that, the thing is, these standards that were imposed upon me as a young person, as I grew, both in age and in the faith, they became no longer imposed, but invited into my life. The things that my dad taught me are now instilled in my life. I did not like them. I did not appreciate them. I did not want them. I could not wait to be 18 to where I did not have to deal with them. But as God spoke to my heart, I suddenly saw that my dad was not the idiot I thought he was. And that these standards that he had developed for his life, I now instilled in my life by invitation because I needed them to help me be the Christian that God wanted me to be. And so... Do we need standards? Yes, we do. And I want to give you a few things tonight as biblical-based reasons for why we need, we have to develop standards, biblically-based standards for our personal walk with Christ and for our families, especially for the young couples that are, that are here you are raising your families in a generation that wants to take them away and make them something that God did not create them. They want to blend their genders, make them gender neutral, where they, they do not even know what they are. Why? Because it makes them feel good about themselves. But God said, no, I created you for a purpose. And so we want to look at a few things here tonight. Biblically-based separation, we talked about last week, will beget biblically-based standards. It can do no other, because if we begin to separate from the world, we will have to set standards to keep that separation, or we will go back. So we want to look at a few things. Number one, what standards are not? Standards are not salvation. They are not salvation. We get accused many times of being a legalistic church because we have standards. Whatever. Legalism is something in addition to in order to gain salvation. That has never been preached from the pulpit of Parkview Baptist Church. That has never been said. That has never been thought. It is not salvation to have standards. There are many people that have very high standards. You look in the Bible, the Pharisees had the highest standards. And God called them vipers and liars and uh, pretty much told them they were pretty horrible people. So if standards were salvation, they would be at the first of the line. But no, it wasn't. So standards do not save us. And the Bible tells us if any man is in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creature. Standards are not spiritual makers. In other words, they do not make me spiritual because, once again, the Pharisees would have had a corner on the market of spirituality. But all they had was the corner on the market of religion, which is dead without Christ. And so standards do not make me spiritual. Just because I walk in this church with a tie and a suit and a Bible, the biggest, blackest King James Bible I can carry, does not mean I'm spiritual because I'm setting a high standard of dress. No, it starts in the heart. God told Samuel, uh, when he was looking at Eliab, he said, I look not on the outward appearance, but God, I look on the heart. Yes, sir. Now, you cannot say, well, my heart's fine, and the outside be wrong. Because what starts on the inside will come out and bear fruit. And so, standards are not salvation. 
They are not spiritual makers, and as I already mentioned, they are not personal preferences. Those are just things, those are, not, those are things I've based on my life experience. They're not necessarily biblically, principally based for saying, okay, thou shalt not kill. Now, how am I going to, you understand? So, there are personal preferences. Standards are boundaries that help us maintain our beliefs. They are boundaries that we install in our life to help us maintain our beliefs. They are walls that we build, a hedge, so to speak, as we see in the Bible, a hedge that we build in our life to keep our flesh at bay. Because when I decide that my kids or I am not going to do this because I do not believe it pleases God, when I set that standard, the devil's going to attack it. And my flesh wants it. There are certain kinds of music. If I listen to one song, I'll listen to a hundred. But because it's not right, and because it's worldly and it's ungodly and it's wicked, I don't listen to it. I have set a standard of what I'm going to listen to, what I'm going to allow my, my ears to hear. My flesh wants the other stuff. So I have to set a standard and then build a hedge there of godly music to push it out Amen. and to keep my flesh at bay. So these are what standards are. Uh, and, and we've already talked about the three types of standards in our lives, imposed, imposed invited, and implied. So we will either be a cautious Christian or a carefree Christian. Those are two kind of Christians I, I see that, that take standards and they go one way or the other. I'm either going to be cautious and say, you know what? Does it matter? Or I'm going to be carefree and say, I've got liberty. I can do whatever I want. And so I want to look at three things here real quick tonight. Uh, and we'll be done. The substance of standards. So what is the substance or ingredients of what we do and why we try to do it? I've heard comments like uh, in, in church settings, well, we do this because it's the Baptist way or it's because it's the, the perfect way. Or, and, and it's always in a derogatory, uh, so, so to speak, a derogatory mode of speech as to why we, we have a standard on a certain thing. But the substance of standards is to be, number one, the commandment of the principle found in the Word of God. What do we believe? What do we believe? If we believe nothing, then there is no need for standards. But if we believe something, if we read our Bible, God opens His Word to us and teaches us something, uh, that they are not going to be not, they're not going to be negotiable. We can't take the Word of God and change it to fit my standards. My standards must fit the Word of God. And so the one that I wanted to use an example tonight is Psalms 101 and verse 3. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. And so that word wicked there means wicked, ungodly, evil, naughty, ungodly, worthlessness. Worthless, good for nothing, unprofitable. There are certain things, certain movies that come out, certain TV shows that we do not allow in our home just because they are worthless. Uh, there, there was a movie that we, I remember when we were flying to the Philippines, we watched uh, these different things, and there was a movie that I watched, I said, that is worthless, worthless. And when I came home, my children asked to watch it, I said, no, why? Because it is worthless. And so I drew a standard there, and in my, especially for my kids, uh, if there is anything that they're going to watch, I preview it first. Why? Because I don't want anything wicked set before their eyes. Because I answer for what they see. I answer. They're my children. God gave them to me. He gave them to me to raise. To be as arrows in the hand of a mighty man. And so we set a standard. And I have been burnt before by sitting down and saying, okay, we'll watch this as a family. No, never again. I will preview. Why? Because this world wants to teach them things that I do not want them taught. They want to put things in their mind that I do not want in their mind. And so there's a standard set. And now that I have set that standard, I cannot back away from it. So... There is a commandment here that I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And that's not just for children. That's not just for children. 
we so often allow things to come into our eyes. We, Sherry and I, we have cut so many things from our viewing habits and so many things from, why? Because we are trying to call and take down and get the worthless things out, the wicked things out. And that is how standards develop. The same standard I had when she and I got married has progressed, not regressed. And, I, and I'll give you this too. Before we got married, we talked about the standards that we would have for our children, for our sons, for our daughters, for what they would do, what they would wear, what we would allow before we got married. Why? Because how can two walk together except they be agreed? You marry somebody that has a whole separate set of standards from you, it's going to cause some problems. It will cause problems. Because you believe what somebody's going to give. Somebody's going to have to give. And usually it's not somebody stepping up to the higher standard. So, the commandment, the principle. Setting of standards is not a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's a daily evaluation of our walk with God. This world is ever-changing. As I think as Tim Green said, uh, don't give me anything new, I'm already against everything. I mean, every day there's something new. There's something coming out, something new, something faddish, something uh, fashionable that we're going to have to look at and decide how are we going to apply biblically the Word of God to that and set a standard. So we have the commandment. We have the conviction of the principle, something scriptural that I am absolutely convinced of and not willing to change. Not willing to change. He said, set no wicked thing before my eyes. So I have to be willing to set that based upon this principle and not change it. Job said in uh, Job chapter 31 and verse 1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Made a covenant with my eyes. I made an agreement with my eyes that that I would be careful, he says, why then should I look upon a maid? One of the worst things that a man can deal with is lust uh, towards a woman. And so therefore, if, if we need to make a covenant with our eyes that we're going to avoid, I was listening to a pastor preach on this not too long ago. He said, I don't even go in the mall where I know certain stores are located because I don't want to even view by chance something that I should not see. In stores that we go into, there are certain aisles that we should avoid. Why? That's a standard. I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will set no wicked thing before them. So are we convicted by something in the Word of God, a commandment that we are not willing to negotiate, we're not willing to change, and we will set a standard upon that? You think about David. This is one of the the most well-known passages of the Word of God about our eyes getting us into trouble. It says in 2 Samuel, when it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. The standard that David stepped around is found just a few, a few, a few verses previous to this, is at the time when kings go to battle. He was not supposed to be there. He was supposed to be where his leadership, his authority had placed him in the battlefield. But because he stepped around to do something that he should not do, he got himself into a world of trouble. If a man breaks through a hedge, a serpent will bite him. God gives us hedges in our lives, standards that we build in our lives, and when we break through those things, we get into a world of hurt. Because if they are biblically based, biblically principle, you know, a biblical principle as their foundation, then we are going against the word of God. So are we committed to this principle? In Proverbs chapter 16, it says, commit thy works unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. Everything we do should be to God. Whatsoever the hand finds to do, do it with all thy might, as unto the Lord and not unto men. So what we do is to God. So we see here the substance of standards. Those are three things that make up standards. The safety of standards. Well, first thing we see is it protects us from a lying enemy. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. See, the devil does not seek to crush us all in one moment. 
He seeks a foothold. Because remember, uh, on D-Day, as the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy there, they were not seeking to uh, take over the entire Europe, uh, European theater at that time. They were seeking to establish a beachhead, a foothold for further invasion. They went to Omaha. They went to all these different beaches, and they established a foothold. They beat back the defenses so that they could get established and then make their way in. That's what the devil seeks to do. As a roaring lion walked about seeing whom he may devour. Over in Job, we find that God uh, says in verse uh, number 6 of chapter number 1, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down in it. Doesn't that sound like 1 Peter? The only thing Satan leaves out here is that I'm roaring about trying to devour people. But God confronts him with that. He said, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none... Like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth. He hates evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. He hated evil and God gave him a hedge. That's where we get a hedge of protection as we pray so often. Uh, you know, please pray, place around us a, a hedge of protection. But he worked to follow God and do things God's way, and God gave him a hedge, a standard, a place of protection against Satan. So these standards that we instill in our life will protect us from an enemy who is lying in wait. Second thing that I see, though, that standards do, as we mentioned, they protect us against our flesh. They protect us against our excesses. In our lives, we have besetting sins. The Bible talks about besetting sins, sins that come very easily in our lives, that beset us, that, that we uh, have trouble with. And so in those areas of our lives, we should set high standards, higher than even maybe what we think is Okay, we should go a rung higher. Why? Because it's easily allowed in my life. It's something that I deal with. There, there are standards in my life that I set higher because I know that it's a place that the devil could get a very easy foothold in my life. In James, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So the Bible sets a very clear principle about we are tempted of our own lust and drawn away, so we need standards in our life to protect us against ourselves, our own excesses, our own lust. You know, what I do in moderation, my children will do in excess. So the standards I set in my own life to keep me are not just for me, they are for them. Because what they see Daddy do they will implement in their life. And if it's okay for daddy to do this, then it should be okay for me to do it. And why not go a little bit further? So as a father, I set higher standards in areas that I know I have problems. Because it is a family trait often that things that I deal with, my kids are going to deal with. It, 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 it happens. It happens. So we are to protect ourselves with standards from our own excesses. In Judges chapter 21, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We have so many Christians living in that area today that I will do what I think is right because I have a good life. God's not judging me about anything. Look at me. I have... I have a good job, I have good kids, I have good this, I have good that, I have good this. But there's no power. There's no presence of God in our lives. We have good, we don't have godly. And so we do what is right in our own eyes and we allow our excesses to just flourish. And then it says, when uh, lust uh, hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin is finished, bringeth forth death. We can't think just because I'm getting away with it today, I'll get away with it tomorrow. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, 
that shall he also reap. And if I sow to my flesh, I'm going to, of the flesh, reap corruption. If I sow to my excesses, I'm going to reap even more lust and more sin and more death in my life, but also my children's life. So standards are important because it protects us from our enemy, but it protects us from ourselves. You, I mean, you know, it's interesting that what we will allow in our lives, knowing that it's wrong, but think it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Look at so-and-so. They're in the news. They just killed 15 people. That's bad. Well, yeah, that's bad. But I'm a Christian. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And so it protects us against our excesses. And standards will help predict for us an end result. We have three things that we see, either devoured by the devil, death by our own lust, or we can do well. In Psalm chapter 1, verse number 1, the Bible says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, and his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. This is a man who sets standards in his life to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the sea of the scornful. But instead, he delighted in the law of the Lord. He took a biblical principle and based his standards upon it. God says that whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Shall prosper. I'm not preaching prosperity gospel. I'm saying that if we obey God, he is faithful. And his promises are true. And he says, if you will not do this, but do this, you will prosper. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 3, it says, According to his divine power, he given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. So are standards important? Yes. Yes, they're important. We need to develop them in our lives. And there's two situations that I see because of standards. I believe the Christian who is committed to giving everything over to God will have what we would call, quote-unquote, higher standards. They will separate more fully from the world. Complacent Christians are content with the good life. We get lulled into a false sense of security. Just enough God just enough church, just enough ministry service, just enough Christianity to be good. We don't want to go overboard. We don't want to get too caught up in this thing. Jesus Christ got caught up enough that he gave his life a ransom for all. And we want to sit here and quibble, quibble about requirements or standards that help us to live a godly Christian life. So are we complacent or are we committed? The Christian who is committed to giving everything over to God will, will by nature have higher standards. They will take the high road. Why? Because they want to walk closer to God. They will have higher standards than those that are complacent to merely go through the motions. David, I find this interesting. As I was reading just through normal daily reading of the Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and in verse number 8, it says, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. These are the names of those who David had. Now, if you remember, we, we taught a couple weeks ago about uh, David and how he had numbered the people. And there was hundreds of thousands of warriors that David had. But out of all those hundreds of thousands, these are the names of the mighty men. And it's interesting to me. It says the Tachmanite that sat in the seat chief among the captains. 
says he lift up his spear against 800. Then you go down a little bit further, it talks about Dodo the Ohohite, it says his, his hand clave unto the sword. Then you go down and you talk about uh, Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herahite, there was a piece of ground full of lentils and the people fled, but he stood in the midst of the ground, defended it, and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. So you have these three men right here. And right on the heels, right on the heels of God telling about these three mighty men, he says this. And David was in it in a hold, and in the garrison of the Philistines, which was in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Now it's interesting to me that these three men did this job and what, I, what touched my heart and was convicted of me by God was that these three men could hear the whispered wants of the king. Why? Because they were close to him. Because the standard of their warfare was not the standard of the general soldier. They stood in the midst of a piece of ground when everyone else fled. They had courage to stand. They had a higher standard of service to the king. They, they, they went down into a pit and slew people that nobody else would deal with. They stood their ground and when the king whispered his want, they could hear it. Why? Because of the relationship with the king. There was a whole camp of soldiers out there. Whole camp. They couldn't hear the king. Well, they followed the commandments of the king. When Joab came out and said, the king wants us to go do this, they lined up and they marched. A lot of Christians that way. They, they don't necessarily hear the commandment from the king, but they hear the preachers say, we should do this, and they say, we'll do it, which is good and well. But we ought to be able to hear the king, the requirements of the king. There's a lot of soldiers camped out that night when these three left, but nobody joined them. Why? They hadn't heard what the king said. They marched down. They got the water. They brought it back. Why? a little bit higher standard. You know, believe it or not, I know after seeing me play softball, you're wondering why I'm not in the Major League Baseball. You know, I, I watched uh, Iglesias do some things at shortstop that if I did it, I would be in traction for a week. He has talent. He has ability. But what he also has is time put in perfecting his craft. You know, I don't know how you feel about football or, or, or certain players, but Peyton Manning was one of the greatest quarterbacks uh, ever to play in the NFL. The thing about Peyton Manning was, Peyton Manning was not just there when the coach told him to be there. I, I remember a picture of Peyton Manning sitting, uh, icing down uh, you know, his leg, uh, trying to get a treatment on because he had rolled an ankle, and he's sitting there with a playbook, and a helmet on so he could listen to what's going on out on the field and correct those guys when they did something wrong from where he's getting treated for an injury. He went beyond what was required. He went beyond what the coach expected. We'll never be the best Christian that we can be if we only do what God requires. We'll never be the Christian that God really wants us to be if we only do what's expected to go beyond the expectations, to set a higher standard and live it consistently. We will fall. We will fail. But God says, I uphold you with my hand. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he falls, he is not cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his right hand. So where are we going to set? Because we all have standards. If we didn't, 
where would we be? Everyone's going to draw a line somewhere. I, I, I've listened, I, and I've done a lot of research on this, a lot of study, a lot of listening to other pastors to see what they, and I've heard both sides of the story. But you know, those that say, well, you're just being, uh, you're just being legalistic, they still have standards, right? Because their choir is still clothed. I mean, right? There is a line drawn somewhere. So do we draw it back there? Or do we say, well, you know, I'm just going to go a little bit further than expected, than what might be required. Why? Because it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth setting a higher standard to live by. I want to read you this story. And it's a bit of a lengthy story, but I think it's really good. It's a military story. And I trust that you'll, you'll stay with me as I read this, because like I said, it, it's a little bit lengthy, but we'll finish with this. General John Kelly was the commander of all U.S. and Iraqi forces uh, over uh, in Iraq during Iraqi freedom and uh, during these uh, different deployments that were going on over there, and he was a Marine. He was in command of the Marine Infantry Battalions, the 1-9, uh, which is called the Walking Dead, and the 2-8. And these two battalions were switching out in Ramadi. One battalion was in the closing days of their deployment, going home very soon. The other was just starting its seventh-month combat tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Hader, 22 and 20 years old respectively, one from each battalion, were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate of an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks that housed 50 Marines. The same broken-down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police, also men and also our allies in the fight against the terrorists in Ramadi, a city that until recently the most dangerous city on earth was owned by the Al-Qaeda. Yale was a dirt poor kid from Virginia with a wife, a daughter, a mother, and a sister, all who lived with him and whom he supported. He did this on a yearly salary of less than $23,000. Hader, on the other hand, was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. They were from two completely different worlds, and had they not joined the Marines, they would never have met each other or even understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously depending on one's race, education, economic status. But they were Marines, and they were combat Marines, forged in the same crucible of Marine training. And because of this bond, they were brothers as close or closer than if they had been born of the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant that day went something like this. Okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. Are you clear? I am sure Hale or Yale and Herder then rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, yes, Sergeant, with just enough attitude that the point was made without saying the words, no kidding, sweetheart, we know what we're doing. They then relieved two other Marines on watch and took up their posts at the entry control point of Joint Security Station Nasser in the Sophia section of Ramadi, El Anbar, Iraq. Just a few minutes later, a large blue truck turned down the alleyway, perhaps 60 or 70 yards away from where they stood. It sped its way through the serpentine of concrete jersey walls. The truck stopped just short of where the two were posted and detonated, killing them both catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed. A mosque 100 yards away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 yards away from where it exploded, knocking most of a house down before it stopped. Our explosive experts reckon that the blast was made of 2,000 pounds of explosives. Two died, and because of these two young infantrymen who did not have it in their DNA to run from danger, they saved the lives of 150 of their brothers-in-arms. This general goes on to say, when I read the situation report about the incident a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander for details as something about this struck me differently. Marines dying or being seriously wounded in, uh, are commonplace in combat, and we expect Marines, regardless of rank or MOS, to stand their ground and do their duty and even die in the progress or in the process, if that is what the mission takes. But this seemed just a little bit differently. The regimental commander had just returned from the site, and he agreed, but reported that there were no American witnesses to the event, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance to find out what actually happened and then to be able to decorate the two Marines posthumously to acknowledge their bravery, 
I'd have to do it as a combat award that requires two eyewitnesses, and we figured that the bureaucrats back in Washington would never buy Iraqi statements. If it had any chance at all, it had to come under the signature of a general officer. General Kelly then traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke individually to a half dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told the same story. The blue truck turned down the alley and immediately sped up as it made its way through the serpentine. They all said, we knew immediately what was going on as soon as the two Marines began firing. The Iraqi police then related that some of them also fired, and then to a man, they ran for safety just prior to the explosion. All survived. Some were injured, some seriously, some not. One of the Iraqis elaborated, and with tears welling up in his eyes, said they should have run like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned in that very instant was that Marines are not normal. Choking past the emotion, he said, Sir, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. They saved us all. What we did not know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later after I had written a summary and submitted both Yell and Herder for posthumous decoration, was that one of our security cameras, though damaged initially in the blast, recorded some of the suicide attack. It happened exactly as the Iraqi described it. It took exactly six seconds from when the truck entered the alley until it detonated. You can watch the last six seconds of their young lives. Putting myself in their heads, I suppose it took about a second for the two Marines to separately come to the same conclusion about what was going on once the truck came into their view at the far end of the alley. Exactly no time to talk it over or call the sergeant to ask for what they should do, only enough time to take half an instant, and think about what the sergeant had told them to do a few minutes before, let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. The two Marines had about five seconds left to live. It took maybe another two seconds for them to present their weapons, take aim, and open up. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here the recording shows a number of the Iraqi police, some who had fired their, their weapons now scattering like the normal and rational men that they were, some running right past the Marines. They had three seconds to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines' weapons firing nonstop. The truck's windshield exploded in shards of glass as the rounds found its mark in the body of the terrorist who was trying to get past them to kill their brothers in arms, who were bedded down in the barracks, totally unaware of the fact that their lives at that moment at that moment, depended entirely on two Marines standing their ground. Because two Marines stood between them and a crazed suicide bomber. The recording shows a truck careening to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of the instantaneous violence, Yale and Herder never hesitated they never stepped back. They never even shifted their weight. With feet spread apart, they leaned into the danger, firing as fast as their weapons would work. They had one second to live. And the truck explodes, and the camera goes blank. They stood when no one else would. Ezekiel says... I sought for a man among them to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge, to set the standard and not retreat. To not retreat. Why? Because of who's behind me. That if I retreat, they could be destroyed. Who am I in authority over? Who do I have responsibility for? That I will have to answer to God. If those two men, you say, they gave their lives. Yes. If they had left their post, they would have had to answer for the lives of many who would have died. And yet we will stand and say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the devil gets in. It doesn't matter if he gets in and devours and destroys, as long as I can have liberty and live the way 
I want to. So our standards important. Yes. Because when based upon biblical principle, they keep an enemy at bay from destroying our lives. And they keep us at bay from destroying our lives. So will we stand? Will we stand? Will we set standards that mean something? Because we can set a, a piddly little standard that means absolutely nothing because it's easy and convenient for us to allow it. But will we set standards that will save our families? Simple question. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, you have left us here to serve you. But God, a vessel that is dirty cannot be used. And so therefore, Lord, you have given us principles in your word to help us to set standards in our lives, to keep ourselves clean, to be vessels of honor in your house. Give us wisdom, dear God, as we develop these in our lives personally and as we maintain these in our church corporately. Lord, we not step back from the fight and give up. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our hymn books for a moment, Brother Tom. 816. Page number 816. We'll have a, just a time of invitation. The altar's open. But we'll sing page number 816. And then we'll give our announcements to be done for the night. Brother Tom. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Search me and try me, Master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now, as in thy presence, humbly I bow.